Amen. God is great, isn't he? He's a great God and greatly to be praised. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord in the company of God's saints. It's good to see everyone here tonight. And we um, honor the Lord Jesus Christ for his tremendous grace in our life. And of course, it is in him that we live and move and, and have our being. And we just honor him for all that he does and for everything that he is. And tonight, as we continue in our study, we are talking about this week on working with one another and working with others in particular and how the kingdom of God, we cannot do it by ourselves. But the kingdom of God brings us to relationships. And our goal in the kingdom of God is connect and relate everybody. And that takes some work, but we can do it by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Once again, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 is our, is our key text, and we just like to read a couple of verses tonight, having read the text in its entirety this morning, and then we'll jump right into our word for tonight and look at this next character that we'd like to examine in our list of relationships in Paul's snapshot. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Could you uh, put your bookmark there or your finger in that passage and hold your Bible up, and let's make this declaration of faith so that we can all be in the same spirit of faith. Say this after me. This is my Bible. Though there are many in the world, this one is mine. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Because I am a diligent seeker of God, my life will be better because I have heard the word of faith. Do you believe that? I believe that. Let's make our lives better by hearing the word of God, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's read Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 7. It says, Tacitus, uh, a beloved brother, uh, faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, will come and tell you the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful, beloved brethren who is one of you, they will make known to you also um, all things which are happening here. This morning we looked at this whole ideal of this man that was just called a man with a servant's heart. Tacitus is a man that is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and also a fellow servant of the Lord. Paul says, I'm going to send this man with this servant's heart to you. And he said, for the very purpose, he will let you know and let me know of your circumstances and it will comfort to me and it will be a comfort to your heart. The next man that Paul works with is not a man with a servant's heart but a man with a sinful past. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus is a fascinating man because we meet this man in a little book touched in our, uh, tucked in our Bible called the book of Philemon. 
Some people call the book Philemon. Either one is all right. I'll use the term Philemon tonight. And as we look at this little book called Philemon, it seems like this book is a book, a letter that was written to an individual. And like many of the New Testament books that we read, some of them are written to regions and to cities, but then some are written to individuals. Let me give you the background on this man Onesimus and tell you his narrative from the book of Philemon. It seems that Onesimus was a man with a sinful past because he was actually a runaway slave. It seems that this man had worked for this man Philemon and uh, one day he runs away from his master. Philemon is one of the leaders in the church at Colossae. Isn't that fascinating? And it even is assumed through church history and some commentators have written that Philemon, the church in Colossae, may have even started in his house. Philemon is a man that has been won to the Lord Jesus Christ by a man named Paul. This runaway slave, Onesimus, runs and gets as far away from Philemon as he can, runs all the way to Rome. And isn't it interesting, when Onesimus gets there, he runs right into Paul. Don't worry about your kids that try to run away. God's got people everywhere. And once God has marked them for destiny and for purpose, he has people that are out there who are watchmen, his agents, his servants, that will be there to bear witness and tell them the same thing you've been telling them. The psalmist said, if I make my bed in heaven, you're there. And if I choose to make my bed in hell, you're there. And if, if I move to the other most parts of the earth, you are there. He runs away to Rome, and all of a sudden, he bumps into this man, Paul. Onesimus has been a slave in the household. He runs away, and in Rome, he encounters Paul. The book of Philemon tells us that Onesimus then uh, receives the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his reception of the Lord, Paul then changes from calling him a runaway slave to beginning to call him a beloved brother. In Philemon chapter, or verse number 15, it's only one little chapter. In Philemon chapter, verse 15, it's right next to the book of Hebrews. Um, he says this, For perhaps he departed from you, as Paul writes to Philemon, for a while, for this purpose that you may receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, which is a language that Paul uses in this book of Colossians. Especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul goes on to tell Philemon in verse 17, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. For if he has wronged you of, uh, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put it on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my hand, I will repay not to mention that you owe me even 
your own self besides. Paul reminds Onesimus that I'm sending him back to you and understand that the biblical principle was really to bring people together that had had ought and offense against each other was really fourfold. First of all, when people were found to be in offense and conflict with one another, the first thing was to work as rapidly as we could to forgive one another. The word forgive means to release. It seems like offense holds us in bondage, but forgiveness releases us and it releases a person that has victimized us. It releases me if I have been victimized and it erases the offense. In the economy of God, forgiveness is instant. One of the powers, the supernatural powers of God is that when I say, forgive me, Lord, he releases me from my sin. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes it from me. When I say forgive me to another human being, it gives an open door for me to be released from the offense and from the damage that has been perpetrated upon them or the damage that I have received in the pain that has happened. In relationship, hatred and alienation and hostility are common to human relationship. And friends, out of alienation and hostility and hatred come things like war, genocide, and even transgenerational tribal and global conflict. We have seen this happen with Jews. We've seen it happen with Armenians. We have seen it happen in places like Croatia and Kosovo. We have seen it happen with the Palestinians and Ethiopians. We have seen it happen other places such as uh, uh, Somalia. We have seen it happen in Ethiopia, Bahrain. Sometimes we've even seen uh, the killing fields in Cambodia. Whenever there is hatred, genocide, the systematic removal of any entity from society will follow, and many times, transgenerational, global, and many times, tribal conflict. However, in the kingdom of God, the Bible tells us to find ways to reconcile with our enemies and with those who have hurt us quickly and to come back into harmony with them, and forgiveness is one of the first steps to begin to do reconciliation. Last summer, I read a remarkable book that was simply called Forgiveness, Breaking the Chain of Hate by Mark uh, Michael uh, Henderson. And Henderson says in his books, various groups in the earth have gotten together to extend forgiveness. He said the legislation and churches and organization of Australia got together to offer reconciliation to the aborigines that through genocide, they wiped out their children and took them from them and abused them, even in government schools. The United Church of Christ in Canada apologized to Native Americans for their abuse uh, in their churches, in their orphan schools, and in their operated schools to children. Forgiveness was extended. The Prime Minister of Japan apologized to the British ex-prisoners that were prisoners during World War II for how their country treated them. 
The Pope apologized to the Jews for the shortcomings of the Catholic Church in confronting Nazism during World War II. The Good Friday Agreement was signed in Northern Ireland, uh, and it was uh, with the Nobel Peace uh, Prize uh, being awarded to the Catholic and to the Protestant uh, political leaders who in turn uh, determined that they wanted to seek peace rather than war. In the report given on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, there was a release of uh, forgiveness so that reconciliation can take place in that nation after apartheid. Even the British Prime Minister expressed regrets to the Irish for the British role in the famine in 150 years earlier. And uh, he reopened dialogue about how we can reconcile after events like Bloody Sunday. Even Bill Clinton apologized to Africa for the slave trades. And friends, there are numerous other accounts in the book of how forgiveness is necessary to, on the journey to reconciliation. Reconciliation is to bring together hostile forces. And reconciliation is done best when forgiveness has preceded it. We come together having released each other. And then we begin to talk about the pain that we've caused each other. And then we talk about how we can move forward. Because talking is therapeutic. And sometimes we repress our pain and then we begin to bring up our pain again. And we, and we try to remember if we had ever reconciled. And sometimes people begin to wonder, did you ever reconcile? The therapy and the ministry of conversation sometimes helps us to get out all that bitterness and pain so that we can move forward. Forgiveness, reconciliation are the first two steps. But then restoration needs to take place. And restoration is when you and I so begin to work on our relationship that we fix the thing that was broken and we want to get set in such a way that is relational that we'll never have to go through this again, reconciliation. You know what reconciliation really does? Reconciliation picks us up, cleans us off so that we can never be moved back to that activity again, reconciliation. Reconciliation means to mend what was broken or was torn or was rent. Reconciliation makes us what we ought to be, forgiving people that are willing to reconcile and restore. Recon restoration makes us fully ready for surface. Restoration repairs what is broken. And restoration must always be done in a spirit of meekness, always considering ourselves. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration are critical for us to work together when there's been offense. But then sometime, as Paul said in these few verses we read, sometime restitution is necessary. And restitution means that when Onesimus left uh, Philemon, it's indicated in the text that he not only left, that would have been bad enough under Roman law for a slave to run away, but he took some of Philemon's property with him. Paul tells him, I'm sending him back to you. And I know he owes you some stuff. He said, and we're not going to skip over the, prob the problem of restitution. He says, if he owes you anything, if he can't repay it, lay it to my account. I'll repay you. And then he reminds Philemon, remember, you also owe me. It's almost like Jesus who tells us a parable of a man that went out and he owed his master much. 
his master came to him and said, pay me my resource. And the man said, I don't have it. He said, then I'm going to throw you in jail. And the man begged and begged and his master let him go. He then went out and caught a friend and grabbed him by the throat who owed him just a little. And the friend begged and begged and pleaded for mercy and for more time. And he said no. And he delivered him to the jail. When his master found out that he had treated his fellow brother so harshly, the master sent out people and said, did not you owe me much? He said, yes, master. He said, and didn't I let you go? He said, yes, master. He said, well, why is it that you treated your brother with such harshness when he owed you such few things? He said, I'm going to deliver you to the torturers and to the tormentors until you pay all. He said, such will the Lord do to those who owe him much because of sin and will not forgive and release their own brother. Paul tells the man Philemon, listen, when he comes to you, if he owes you anything and he can't pay it, lay it to my charge, remembering also that you owe me. Friends, before we sometime hold an offense against someone else, we ought to remember how much we have been forgiven. When you and I don't dwell on but reflect on how much we've been forgiven, we'll worship different. One day, a woman came out and wept over Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. And people said, why is this woman worshiping him in just this demonstrative way? Jesus says, you don't understand. Those who are forgiven much, they love much. It's only when you understand and I understand the depth of forgiveness that we have been given that we can understand how to extend forgiveness to one another. And forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration are important, but sometimes there has to be restitution that's given. Do you know that during World War II, that when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the United States government wrapped up, rounded up all Japanese Americans and interned them during the time of the war. Many of them lost business, educational opportunities, finance, homes, and property. When World War II was over, Japanese Americans brought a suit against the United States government. And the United States government had to pay each one of those families and inner individuals penalties plus damages because they said it was not just for us to take our citizens and turn them in camp, deny them educational opportunity to uh, cause their businesses to go uh, into default, have them lose property and deny them resources and civil rights and then just let them go and say restraint. They said, we cannot do that. That's not just. So they paid Japanese Americans after the war damages plus penalties because of the internment. When Israel was formed in 1948, they brought suit against the German government, a government in the world court. The Luxembourg Agreement came forth. And the Luxembourg Agreement said Germany had to pay these Jews that were interned in concentration camp what they called reparations. 
they were to repair the damages because they said, you cannot just snatch property and business from people. You cannot deny them educational opportunities and civil rights, and you must pay the nation back, Germany, for these resources. When I was in Israel last year, it's kind of interesting. I saw these Mercedes buses and cars, and I said, wow, everyone in Israel must be wealthy. Everybody drives Mercedes. And my guide told me, he said, oh, no, we're not all wealthy in Israel. He said, but one of the things that happened is we buy Mercedes cheap here because Germany is still repairing the damage they did in World War II. People that were Holocaust victims also individually brought suit against Germany. And the world court says you must repair. So not only was the nation repaid, but individual repaid. Native Americans brought a suit against the United States government. I was among the Navajo and I saw these Navajo men walking around. And I said, are these guys slothful? Are they lazy? Why aren't a lot of these men working? He says, you don't understand. The United States government broke 150 different treaties with the Navajo nation. It costs us to lose property, livestock, it says, and our own civil rights with agreements that we had to the uh, United States government. They said, we brought a suit against the United States government and the United States government has a department called the Department of Interior and what's inside of it is called the Department of Indian Affairs and they found out we were just in our suit and now many of the men in the Navajo Nation who could track their ancestry back to that offense, they said they get a check every month from the government. It's not welfare, it's a settlement to help repair. Even the Bible said if you catch a thief, when you catch him, he's got to repay sevenfold. So sometimes there's not only forgiveness that is necessary, there's not only reconciliation that's necessary. There's not only restoration that is necessary, but re uh, restitution is necessary. A way to repair the damages that have been done. Even when the slaves were released at the end of the Civil War, uh, the United States government said, listen, we're going to give every slave, you just can't set them free and say, you're free now. It says you got to give them 40 acres and a mule. United States have never paid that bill, by the way. I don't need the mule now, but I shall take my 40 acres. <laughs> yeah, right in the middle of Manhattan might be a nice place <laughs> if I have choice. <laughs> Downtown Columbus might even be better where I live. But, but all through government, and if governments, and if Large religious groups can give forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, and even restitution. Why can't we do that in the church? Paul is getting ready to send back to the church in Colossae a man with a sinful past. People know Philemon. They know that Onesimus is coming. And in verse number nine, he says, I'm sending this man Tacitus with you. And he said, and he is coming. And he said, and he is going to bring Onesimus to you. And he's a faithful and a beloved brother. Although Onesimus was a runaway slave, watch this now. Paul describes him as a faithful, beloved brother. One of the highest levels of forgiveness and restitution we can do is when we're no longer calling someone an enemy, but now we can call them a faithful and a beloved brethren. The Bible says, woe in unto you because of offense. 
offense must surely come. But then the psalmist says, great peace have they that love thy law. In nothing shall they be offended. When you and I determine we're going to walk by the law of love, we become quick to forgive. I've had some people come up and ask me to forgive them. And in days past, I say, oh, it's all right. And they say, no, you don't understand. It's not all right. That's why I told you, ask you for forgiveness. I hurt you. I was wrong. I want to let, get this thing out of the right, out of the way. It's not all right. And my father, Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, told me, when somebody extends forgiveness, uh, ask for forgiveness, you don't tell them it's all right. He says, you must release out of your mouths the words, I forgive you. He said, because when you do that, the supernatural power of God releases the offense. And he said, and then the Holy Ghost begins to work in your mind and in your spirit to erase the pain. On my right hand, I have a little scar here. I still remember who put the scar on my hand. I played offensive right tackle, and it was the tight end on the North High School football team in a football game in 1970. My hand was down. It was a muddy game, and when he was going to back up, I was a little slow, and he stepped on my hand with his cleat and tore the skin. I still remember who did it. 1970. Senior in high school. But you know what? At this time, though I remember it, there's no more pain in the sore. When I recall the incident, though I know who did it, it just doesn't send a rake and a scar over my heart. I don't think about him the way I did that night. When I said, I got this 250-pound defensive tackle that's trying to get our quarterback that I got a block, now I got to worry about watching you stepping on my hand. All of that pain and that offense is now gone. And you know what God can so do in our heart? And this is a supernatural power of the Holy Ghost. He can take people that have damaged us and hurt us. And when we used to think about them and it would still tear our hearts up, the Holy Spirit can so come in and when you say, I forgive you and I want to be reconciled to you and I want to be restored to you and I want to give restitution to the degree that I can, he can remove all of not only the transgression but the offense and the pain and the bitterness so that even though my mind might bring it to pass, I don't have all the jazz going on inside of me that would cause me to stay distant from you or to whisper about you or to remind you of your past. You see, that be godly is to act like God. And aren't you glad that when you come before God, he doesn't bring your past up in your face all the time? I heard one hallelujah over here and saw two head nods over here. God chooses to forgive. When I was a young Christian, I thought forgiveness was a feeling. I don't feel like forgiving you. Well, I've discovered something in faith. If I wait around for the forgiveness feeling, I'll be waiting a long time. Because my first thought is self-preservation, retaliation, revenge. I'm going to hurt you because you hurt me. But I've discovered that if I choose to forgive, everybody say choose to forgive. Then I can release it and let it go. You see, when a person comes to faith in Christ, they no longer are dealing with their past issue. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. 
old things are passed away and behold, all things are new and have become new. Onesimus was a testimony of the power of the transformation power of God. Transformation means to change. And the change means to do something different, to become something different, to be altered. But transformation is a unique kind of change because when you and I are transformed, we can never go back to what we were before. You see, a, a polywog goes into a transformation to become a frog. Once it becomes a frog, it can never go back to a polywog again. A butterfly goes to a transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. But once it becomes a butterfly, it can never become a caterpillar again. Listen, when a baby is birthed in the womb and becomes a toddler, it can never become that fetus and that fertilized cell in the womb again. You can never be like you were before. So God commits to transform us. And he commits to so change us that we can never be what we were before. Paul tells the Colossians that the man that left Colossae and ran away as a slave now returns to you as one of your number. Let me ask you, as ministry workers who have opportunity to work with one another, what are your feelings about people that have a sinful past? What do you do about people that have made mistakes? I've had people that have made mistakes in our church and gotten involved in sin and sometimes gotten involved in, fine, in uh, offense. I've had people that have just run away because an event happened at the church. Many times they were loyal people, people that said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll never leave you alone. And then at the first sign of offense, all of that relational equity begins to dissipate and evaluate. We forget how we were in the trenches together during times of sickness. We forget how the church was there when I had loss and tragedy and trauma and grief and weeping. It's very easy to forget that when I lost my job, it was people from the church that helped sustain me and underwrite me. All of those kinds of things bring relational equity, but in the wake of offense, many times all of that dissipates. And you would think that I had grown horns as their pastor. Somebody had written 666 across my forehead and I had become their greatest enemy when I crossed the boundary or they perceived I did in something that was important to them. And friends, how do we get rid of those perceived and sometimes actual offenses that happen? I'm bringing to you tonight that unless we learn how to receive one another, even through our past and bring forth and deal with issues, we can never walk in what God wants us to walk in. It's not only true in the church, friends, but it's true in our families. Because when you and I live with people, there's all kind of disappointment and offense that we experience, even when we're married and when we're in love with each other. Many of us just think that, well, if you just love me, you wouldn't do that. Well, sometimes we just lose our minds. Sometimes we're not thinking. You do understand that when a man's mind is being formed when he's in his mother's womb, when that hormone called testosterone floods into his brain, the brain is like a walnut. It has two hemispheres. Women don't have testosterone, but men, that, that hormone testosterone kind of equally divides some of the connecting rods between both sides of the brain. 
Now, women, they don't have testosterone with estrogen and progesterone and other uh, hormones inside of women. You don't have that. So your emotional sense and your logical and rational sense, listen, they are all connected all the time. So you tie emotion with event. That's why you could have a fight one minute with a man. He could say, forgive me, and you say, well, you're forgiven. And, and you just now, it's 9 o'clock, had a fight. You reconciled and forgave, kissed each other. And he goes in, takes a shower and shaves, and he's ready. <laughs> but when you come in as a woman, you're hugging the west coast of the bed. Don't touch me. Our toes ain't touching. Our arms aren't touching. And when he moves close, sometimes you don't even say nothing. You just say, what he think he doing? And men, because we're brain damaged, we're brain damaged. We don't even get the signal. We don't even notice that you don't have on the silk nighty tonight. We don't notice that you have on the nightcap that says ain't nothing happening tonight. We don't notice that you put on the pajamas where you had to put your feet in and then zip it all the way up to the neck. We don't notice any of that. Because we're thinking that was in the living room at 9 o'clock. This is a bedroom, 10.30. What's the problem? <laughs> because men and women are different. Oh, I heard all the women say, Amen. <laughs> We're just different. And so because even in the human walk and in our humanity, we tie emotion to events. Sometimes when, when, I, when I say I forgive you, it disconnects me from the event. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work on the emotion of the event. Somebody said, well, aren't you supposed to forgive and forget? Sometimes we're just not wired that way. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can forgive and move on and trust the Holy Spirit to begin to help me manage my emotions. Help me to put things in the right perspective and go through the journey of forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, and even restitution as it were. You see, Paul's thought concerning Onesimus in Galatians chapter 3 or in verse number 28. You see, in, in the Bible, it never tells us that slaves had a right to run away. Most of the Jewish and um, Roman slaves were indentured servants more than the brutal slavery that uh, dehumanized uh, the American Negro here in the United States. Most folks didn't have that kind of brutal slavery in their colonies in Rome or in Israel. Most of them were people that were enslaved because of debt and they were working off debt and once debt was worked off, they were set free. But there was a class system because of slavery. And here's what Paul says when we come to Christ. In Galatians 3, 28, he says, there is therefore a neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
for all are one in Christ. It says, if you are then Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs together of the promise. Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae. He calls him a faithful and a beloved brethren. He said, that is one of you. He said, I'm sending him back to you. Paul shows his regard for this man who had run away, but now he's sending him back on a team to let them know about Paul's whole situation. More detailed information can be read in that little book called Philemon that I read a little of uh, verses from. I think it would behoove every one of us at Faith Christian Center maybe to take that as a devotional reading during the course of the next few days. Because friends, as we come into the last days and we work closer together, offense will happen. Friends, sometimes it happens because of scheduling where we thought we could do something and we found out we had something else on the calendar. We just can't make it. It's easy for people to take up an offense. Sometimes offense happens because someone did get mad at unresolved issues, unhealed hurts, unmet need, unresolved issues. And then all of a sudden they surface with a blow up at some point in time in the present, but really it's linked to an emotional event in days past. And if we don't forgive, we can never work our way through to say, okay, what was the root cause that caused this big blow up? What was the systemic cause that caused this big conflict? Why was this response to such a little event in life? Sometimes it takes time to work our way back to find out what are root causes and lay the ax to the root of the tree so we can move forward. When I read the Bible, as I close tonight, I want you to understand that the Bible is full of people that God worked forgiveness, that he worked reconciliation, that he worked restitution, and he also worked restoration with. One of my favorite biblical characters is the man David because he was a king, he was an authority in the nation. He was also a father and a husband. He was a worshiper and a warrior. One night, David makes a bad decision to commit adultery, tries to cover up his adultery with a murder. When his murder is discovered and the adultery is discovered by a prophet, all Nathan does is point it out. And when he discovers that you're the man, David never denies it. David comes before God. He pins a psalm called Psalm 51. And he begins to cry out to God, have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this transgression in your sight. He begins to ask God to wash him and then cleanse him and purge him. He begins to ask God to do a deep work in him. He said, man, he said, if I could worship you and praise you and bring a sacrifice, I would do it. He said, but I've discovered that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A broken spirit when I have been the offender like Onesimus was the offender in this case. A broken spirit says, listen, I have offended God. I have caused now an opportunity to come up that offends the holiness of God. 
A broken spirit looks at the breach of the relationship my sins causes between me and God because initially all forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration needs to happen Godward first. I cannot reconcile with my brother unless I first reconciled with God. If I don't get it straight with God, I can never get it straight with my fellow man. Brokenness says, God, there's a breach in our relationship. Something is missing. When something is missing, I act like Adam. I don't go searching to walk with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. But instead of running to God, I run from God when there's a breach in my relationship. Instead of searching out God, I search out other sources to numb the pain of the sin of the breach of the relationship that's there. And that's why some people, when they breach that relationship of sin, if they don't understand that there's reconciliation and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. They go out and they get drunk. They go out and they get high because they're trying to numb the pain, but natural stuff cannot numb a spiritual pain. People get depressed. They quit. They avoid the church because the church in the community represents the very presence of God in the community. They avoid the church. They avoid saints. They begin to hide. David said the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit. But listen, secondly, he said the sacrifice of God are contrite heart. A contrite heart, now he says, do I need to get it right before God? Because many people will do that. They'll say, well, God has forgiven me. But listen, he said also in a contrite heart. And contrite heart says, I have to inspect the damage that my deed caused everybody else. Because no sin may be individual, it is never private. By one man's sin, all were made sinners. It was individual, but it wasn't private. My individual sin can have impact on a lot of people and a contrite spirit says, I must not only look at the damages between the relationship between me and God, but I also must look at the damages I have caused a person or a family or people groups. And to the degree I can, I need to seek forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, and restitution so that we can all move forward. And friends, that is not an event. That is a process. It takes time. And Onesimus was with Paul for a long time before Paul writes a letter to Philemon and said, Onesimus, when you go back, hand Philemon this letter before he deals with you. And then he writes to the church at Colossae and says, I'm sending this man back that's a faithful servant his name is Titicus, but with him, I'm also sending this man Onesimus. And he says, and he's in a new stand. He's a faithful brother, a beloved brother, and he's doing well. Pastor Ray, if you could come, because a few years ago, I had a, a gentleman that played keyboards in my, uh, in my church. And in our church back home that the Lord has given me to be a steward over, he was a great keyboardist, and, uh, and he was kind of a handyman on the side. When he's doing his handyman work, whether on people's cars or people's houses, he was always coming up short. I don't know if you've ever dealt with subcontractors. Oh, so I heard a couple of groans. Let me, let me move on. 
But let me tell you, the deal just never was closed right. And so I had all of this offense through the congregation. Because here this man was up trying to lead worship on the keyboard. And he had offense over here. Somebody's car he didn't repair right over here. Somebody's kitchen he was supposed to paint over here and never painted it right. Somebody's floor he's supposed to lay ceramic towel and they gave him the money for a ceramic towel and he brought a cheaper version and a different color to save money and pocketed and did never made the deal right. And after a while, increasingly, I began to see that our worship ceiling was dropping lower and lower and lower because it just didn't seem that we could break through. And I inquired of the Lord. He said, there's offense among the congregation. I began to pray on offense one Sunday. And then people, I didn't even know that this was going on because sometimes pastors, we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We know what God reveals to us and we know what people tell us. And we do times of discovery to find out sometime even if that's true. People begin to say, well, pastor, what do you do when this wasn't a one-time act, but it was ongoing with many people in the congregation, and now we're comparing notes, and there's somebody that's highly visible that's on, watch this now, your platform. That is the real source of what's going on here. My stance as a leader is I said, who are we talking about? That's what I always ask. Somebody brings an accusation. They say, like, there's a sister in the church. I say, who are we talking about? Now, either find out you're going to get honest or all this jazz needs to stop because I ain't going to be looking strange at all the sisters at the church because you told me some sister at the church acting crazy. I say, is it this one? Is it this one? I'm not going to do that. I ain't going to play them games. I ain't got time for all that. I say, who are we talking about? And many times I found out that stops all this stuff, but sometimes they'll say, it's this person. And after I heard two or three witnesses about this same person, went and confronted them, told them that you can never do work for people in this church again until you get it right with all of those people. The very next week, took a job, did it, half did it. And so I pulled him off the keyboard and I said, you're an offense to the church and until you do reconciliation and restitution. Some of these women were single moms. You ripped them off. We're not going to have that in our church. Young man disappeared out of our church. Just disappeared. Just disappeared. Didn't know where he was. And after two weeks, one of my friends, Jerry Fryer, called me up. And Jerry Fryer said, you know, you were over at our church and we had a fellowship service. And I remember a few months ago that the fellow that was playing your keyboard, he's been showing up at my church worshiping. And I said, oh, Really? And he said, so the last time he came, I stopped at the door and said, what are you doing over here? Aren't you Lafayette's keyboardist? And he said, well, yeah, but I feel the Lord saying something else right now. <laughs> Y'all know how we do. Y'all know how we do. And Jerry Fryer said, I need to know what the deal on this man is. And I said, Jerry, he's under church discipline. Send him back to me. My friend Jerry Fryer sent him back to me. And I told him, I said, brother, 
we're going to work this out because if we don't work it out now, it's going to be a repeat performance every place you go and you're going to keep running this same cycle. I said, we're going to work this through. We're going to make it right with all these people. We're going to make it right with all these folks. And we did that. We worked our way through no matter how hard it was to work it through. I had him go back and redo work on people's cars. Some people said, I don't want him touching my vehicle anymore. I just want my money back. Y'all know how that is too, don't you? And after we got it right and everybody was clear, I said, now we can do two things. I can release you to come in to serve in our church again. Or I can release you to go. And he determined the offense had been too great. And it wasn't the offense at that time. He just said, Pastor, I'm just ashamed. Let me tell you this about shame. Your shame can paralyze you from your future. Because sometimes God and people have done everything they can to restore. But there's this invisible thing called shame that builds up in our mind that causes us to be embarrassed to look at people and always want to walk around with our head down or sit in the back of the church. And I want you to know that Jesus bore the shame for you in Isaiah 53. And you don't have to be ashamed anymore once you've got it right with God if you have a sinful past. It was three or four years later, I went to one of my, our, our fellowship churches. Sister Donna Rice, we went over to her church, her and her husband co-pastor a church together, a powerful church in our city. We went there and there he was playing the organ. Marvelous time in worship. And I leaned over to her because she knew nothing of the history. And I asked Pastor Rice and Gerald Rice, I said, how's he doing? And she said, he's marvelous. He's the greatest asset we've ever had in our church. She said, I had to go through a lot of stuff with a lot of musicians. And I was thinking in my mind, yeah, I know. But I didn't say a word. She said, but he's come in, he's been submissive. He didn't even uh, ask to play anything. But one week our pianist got sick and she said, my husband who was gonna be preaching had to begin to lead worship again. And she said, and he just asked, can I come up and help? She said, we don't even pay him. But he's faithful. I said, he's doing all right. She said, came through our newcomers class. He's an asset to the ministry. You know what I said? I said, that's what I want to see. At the end of that service, I came up and held, held him. And I said, I'm glad that you're doing well. And you know what that did? That opened the door for the church to come up and say, brother, we're glad to see you here. We're glad you're doing well. And now when we see each other, we don't have to duck each other in the city. When will the church learn to do forgiveness? When will the church learn to do reconciliation? When will the church learn to do restoration? When will the church learn to do restitution? and reparations to the degree that we learn to do that. I'm telling you, it's not easy. But if you can have somebody run away with property and then say, but they're returning as a faithful brother, it's worth it all. I want to pray for us as a church because I know this church has also gone through a journey. And it's not only internal, some has been external. But I'll tell you what, there may be even yet some Onesimuses among you. But above that, all of that, there are some Onesimuses outside the doors of this church. For some of you know some members of this congregation that because of offense and because of shame 
and because of some other issues, they just had to leave or they just chose to leave. What would happen as a church if we not only learned how to work together with people that were servants' hearts as we looked at this morning, but people with a sinful past? Can we be like Philemon and hear the voice of Paul tonight and say, I want you to remember that you also owe me. The Lord forgave me much. That's why I'm quick to forgive others. I had a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash away my sin. Do a heart check for the next few moments. Father, in the name of Jesus, we know that in every congregation there are some Onesimuses, some folks that have done offense. Brokenness reconnects us to you. but contriteness reconnects us to one another. And Father, we come to say that we are willing to forgive, to reconcile, to restore, and to bring restitution. Father, help us to be instruments of your peace and not war. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this meditative prayer by St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Father, make us instruments of your peace. Father, help us to be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, I stand and beseech you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled unto God, but help us to be reconciled to one another. 